0: Colossians chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 9 through 14 tonight. If it's your first time here, I want to give you my sincerest welcome on behalf of our fellowship. Um, I also want to let you know that typically we go through the Old Testament on Thursday nights, which is obvious to many of you. Uh, But several months ago, I began teaching Colossians. uh, So I'm just going to continue walking us through that portion of the New Testament. Now, although it is a New Testament letter, the Apostle Paul used so much, uses so much Old Testament language that I pray that after tonight, you will have a more robust understanding of Old Testament themes and passages and how they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and how that impacts our daily lives right now, this side of glory. So before we read the text, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for lavish, lavishing us in the riches that you had in your son, Lord. We just thank you that you have brought us here tonight, safely, and I pray, Father, that you humble us before your word, and that you guide us into all wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, so that we may walk worthy in a manner of you, Lord, so that we may be be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that only comes through Jesus, for your glory, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all of God's people said? Amen. Amen. So if you don't mind, if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Verse 9 reads, For, these, for this reason also, since, it, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the most anxiety-inducing, fear-provoking trains of thought that we let our minds wander to as believers is feeling like we're not at the center of God's will, which is understandable because let's think about it for a moment. As believers, we have come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen, praise God, hallelujah. You've come face to face with his perfect character, have come to know that he is our greatest good and that he is sovereign over all. And to be at the center of his will is the greatest and most secure place to be, but what if you're not? We read in passages like Isaiah 46 that says, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And Psalm 33 that reads, For he spoke and the earth came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. We read passages like those that magnify God's sovereignty, and then we come to know that same God as Father, the one who sent his only son to look sin and death straight in the eye and say, oh, death, where is your sting? When you know that, when that, penetrate, when that truth penetrates your heart, we desire that every single obscure corner of our lives be in his hands and on his mind. When we know God, we don't want anything else than to know and feel that we are exactly where he wants us to be. Jobs, relationships, vacations, promotions, moving out of California, public or private school, who to marry, when to marry, when to have children, and how many children to have, and if what you're really doing is actually pleasing to God. That fear and anxiety of not doing what God the Father is pleased with or had in mind For uh, had in mind for your life is a similar fear and anxiety that non-believers have as well. They may not call it God's will, but they may call it the universe, intuition, nirvana, the alignment of the stars with the alignment of one's internal energies, the highs of getting liquored up and feeling on top of the world. People will seek self-help books, new age gurus, or maybe just the affirmation from today's popular thought leaders. They seek something beautiful and awe-inspiring for the purpose of feeling on purpose, like you matter. Some seek it in Christ. Others seek seek it in feeling alive through experiences. Believers also fall into this trap too. We sometimes feel like we need to get our daily dose of dopamine through experiences by attending concerts or revivals and conferences and sitting under stunning preaching and either going too far on the Christian liberties or becoming extremely legalistic in order to feel like we're growing in our relationship with Christ. Instead of beholding Jesus in all of his beauty, we seek direct revelation from, the, from God through dreams, signs, and experiences vain philosophies, empty deceptions, and unbiblical traditions of men. All of this simply to feel like we're at the center of God's will. So why bring all this up? Because this is the type of false teaching that was infiltrating the church at Colossae. Paul writes this letter to elaborate on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ to a church that was growing apathetic with the Messiah. They were essentially saying, Jesus, He's all right. I'm thankful for salvation and all, but in order to truly continue growing and remaining saved, I'm going back to my dietary guidelines and Sabbath observances, if I have a Jewish background, and my pagan worship of angels and visions and experiences, if I have a Gentile background. The Colossian believers were beginning to depend depend on things outside of Christ in order to grow in the knowledge of God and his will. Obviously a big deal. So at the time of writing this letter, Epaphras, a a native-born Colossian, saved under the preaching of Paul during his three-year ministry in Ephesus, which is mentioned in Acts 19, is with Paul in Rome and has likely shared this bad news that there was a dangerous teaching infiltrating his home church. He was not going to let this slide. So here's what's at stake. Whether one based their faith on the false teaching or on the Lord Jesus Christ which gives the apostle Paul more than enough reason to write, to clarify that Christ is supreme and sufficient. So because this letter highlights Christ, it's only natural for Paul to begin with precious gospel truth. And this is what I covered last time when I covered the first eight verses. And in those eight verses, Paul is exploding with gratitude um, for, for how much fruit the gospel has sprung up in the Colossian church. And it is this evident fruitfulness of the gospel that has provoked Paul and his companions to continuously pray for them to increase in the knowledge of God's will, which leads us to our text for tonight. Now, I know I spoke a little bit about the will of God, and we'll certainly spend some time talking about that. But as we go through verse 9, I titled this, or as we go through verse 9, We'll talk about God's will. But I title this message Walking Worthy because Paul's prayer is for them to increase in the knowledge of God's will for the purpose of walking in the manner worthy of the Lord. So let's start there at verse 9. And as we go through the text, I'll explain why I included those Old Testament passages on the outline. So verse 9. Point number one, filled. For this reason also since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So there are two things that I want to unpack for you all in this verse. And that is the language of be filled and the nature of God's will. So be filled and the nature of God's will. That word be filled it communicates this idea of teaching to a peak level of expression or completion. It's this sort of pursuit with a maximum in mind. In New Testament language, this phrase also means controlled by. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Like Pastor Dave often says, "Be be filled with the Spirit, not the spirits. Contextually, The city of Colossae was near the Lycus River, and this word was also used to describe a ship that was ready for voyage. So essentially what Paul is saying here is the believer has in Christ all that he or she needs for the voyage of life. From these meanings, we can conclude that Paul desires that we be controlled by and readied with the full knowledge of God's will oftentimes what fills us instead is this vain pressure to feel confident in Christ. And so we scramble to find things that make us comfortable when scripture clearly tells us that God has supplied us with all we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellent and excellence. That's in second Peter one, but since it's Thursday, let's talk about being filled using old Testament language. Now, here's why I included Exodus, Exodus 31 and 1 Kings 7 on the outline. There are only two instances where God fills individuals with certain wisdom and knowledge by his spirit in order to accomplish a certain task. And that is Bezalel and Aholiab in Exodus 31, and then Hiram in 1 Kings 7. Bezalel and Aholiab built the tabernacle, Hiram, as well as Solomon, built the temple. So God literally fills him with his creative spirit to to build what he was going to dwell in, in that time. The tabernacle and the temple. God filled people with the spirit in order to have skill to be able to build the tabernacle and the temple. So why does Paul use similar language here in Colossians 1? The reason for that is because Paul sees God as filling Christians, whom he calls the temple of the Holy Spirit elsewhere in Scripture, In order for them to live skillful, godly lives. And that's exactly what he writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 regarding the spiritual gifts. Now here's the most beautiful part of all of this. Check this out. Note takers, you can write Isaiah 11 next to the first point because I'm about to show you why. So Exodus 31 and 1 Kings 7 both show God placing his wisdom and understanding in individuals. In Isaiah 11, however, prophesies something similar happening. Listen closely. Isaiah 11, first two verses read, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Verse 2, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Church, who do you think that is? Jesus. Paul has Exodus 31 and 1 Kings 7 in mind with the understanding that the prophesied resting of the Holy Spirit will be ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in Colossians, Paul writes, for it was the Father's good pleasure good pleasure, for all the fullness to dwell in him. In Colossians 2, 9, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So what should we be filled with as believers? The Lord Jesus Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which Paul writes in chapter two, verse three. In Christ, we have a treasure trove of riches to navigate this life. And I need you to fix your eyes and set your minds on him. Now let's talk about the will of God there are several passages that explicitly say, hey, this is God's will for your life. And so let me summarize them them for you quickly here. So God's will is not a secret. It's not something that you discover. It's something that you discern. God's will is that you are saved, Ephesians 1, 5. Spirit-filled, Ephesians 5, 17 through 18. Sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. Submissive, James 4, 7. That you suffer, indeed. 1 Peter 3, chapter four of 1 Peter as well, and then 2 Timothy 3. And God's will is that you are continuously saying thanks. That you are grateful, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. After that, after that, do whatever you want. I married my wife, Carolyn, because I wanted to. She's pretty awesome. I chose to attend seminary for a while because I thought it would be cool to learn the original languages. I applied at Hillcrest because I thought it would be amazing to talk about Jesus all day, even though it was in Spanish. God has given us much more freedom in our choices than we want to give him credit for. Now on a more serious note, how would you respond to this following question? If God is all knowing, all powerful, all good, is it in his will for little children to be trafficked and abused never to see the light of day again? How do you answer that? I will seek to answer this question by explaining how the scripture reveals the will of God to us. There are two ways to understand the will of God. Number one, his will of decree, his sovereign will. Number two, his, his will of desire. His will of decree is his sovereign will what he has purposed before the foundation of the world. This brings to mind what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, where he says, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. What also comes to mind is Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and Jesus being crucified. Genesis 50 verse 20, referring to Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God God meant it for good. And Acts 4, verses 27 through 28 reads, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Both of these events involved sin. Yet scripture tells us that God ordains things to happen that he he disapproves of. They killed his son. Do you think that the father was surprised by that? Do you think he was in heaven looking down at Calvary saying, wow, didn't see that one coming? Absolutely not. Yet God in his infinite wisdom ordained it all to come to pass. Number two, his will of desire. His will of desire is what we think of most when we think about God's will. What does God desire or want or command us to do? Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Church, does everyone go to heaven? Does everyone go to heaven? No. No. Therefore, this text implies that many people do not do the will of God. Some do, some don't. Which means this will of God has a different meaning than the first one, because the first one is done without fail. And this one, his will of desire, is disobeyed and not done. God commands, Thou shalt not kill yet he ordained his son to be killed. You see how that works? You see how both his will of decree and his will of desire come together beautifully in the the gospel? We need both in order to biblically answer the question I posed earlier about trafficked children because it's the only comfort we have. Here's why. According to his will of desire, we need to believe that God hates what is happening as he observes those vile and wicked sins that he is saying, stop, don't do that. That is contrary to my will. We need to believe that God is right there disapproving of the entire thing. Now, according to his will of decree, we need to believe that God is sovereign. So sovereign that he could turn everything into our glorious good. And if you say, absolutely not. God cannot and is not involved in those situations. His governance of the universe cannot oversee things like that. I cannot believe in a God who ordains that those things come to pass. If you do that, tread carefully because you have just shoved your only solution away. These two meanings of the will of God, his will of decree and his will of desire, need to harmonize because of who God is as sovereign ruler and the responsibility we have as humans to obey him. Now, I hope all that made sense. So as I close out this first point, I will refer to Romans 12, 2, which reads, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewing of your mind, church, will help you discern what the will of God is. Many stay in toxic relationships, toxic jobs, and other situations because their minds have not been renewed. They are not beholding Jesus, delighting in the Lord, and they don't have a fresh perspective of their circumstances. So if you're confused about a decision to make or whether something is in God's will or not, here's what you should should pray through. Renew your mind by asking these questions. Is this decision going to demonstrate my salvation? If you want to date a non-believer, boom, that's out right away. Don't even consider that. That's not God's will. Second question, is it going to allow me to be filled with the Spirit? Third, is it going to sanctify me, set me apart for God's purposes? Is it going to allow me to submit to my ultimate authority? Is it going to help me persevere no matter how much I suffer for the cause of Christ? And lastly, can I continually thank God through it all? So if you're at a a job site or at work and they are causing you to sin, part of that job is you sinning, get out of there. That's not God's will. If you can answer all those questions regarding your decision with a resounding yes, then do it and do it without fear. You have every license to to do to make that decision. You have freedom in Christ. Psalm thirty-four or Psalm thirty-seven, sorry, verse four says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why does the psalmist present it in that order? Because when we delight in God and abide in him, whatever we want will be exactly what he wants for us. What we should should do will at last be identical with what we want to do. There will be no difference between duty and joy. Now, I spent the most time unpacking verse 9 because this is exactly what Paul is unceasingly praying about for the Colossians to be filled with. Now we'll look at why. Point number two, fruitful and multiplied. Verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This idea of worthy walking, both in in both the Greek and the Hebrew, both describe a guided behavior that gives honor to its object of praise. For example, if you walk into an In-N-Out at 1 a.m. with your friends, you're going to be acting a whole lot different than walking in at 5 p.m. with your grandmother for dinner. That's just the reality of it. There's this sense of honorable conduct determined by who you're with. Adam walked with God, Genesis 3. Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6. They all conducted themselves, at least for a little bit, in a way that matched and magnified the character of God. So here's what this means for us. The character of the believer is to be fitting with or matching the character of Jesus. I remember I just went to my, last, my first youth retreat um, as part of Conejo Valley. And I remember we were out in this uh, in this lobby area waiting for the cafeteria doors to open, and I saw some some of, not, they weren't some of ours, but there were some students or some some uh, some youth from a different church who were looking like they were about to fight, like right then and there in the cafeteria. And I, I pulled them aside. I'm like, "What are you doing? Wrong place, wrong time. What are we here for?" And I was actually surprised for his, uh, surprised about his answer. He said, "To praise God." And then I said, well, act like it. Act like someone died for you, because they did. This knowledge of God's will hands all believers one particular responsibility to live out, and that's to please God. But Chris, doesn't the Bible say that our good works are like filthy rags to God? How can we ever please such a righteous holy God when we fall so short so constantly? First Peter 2 verse 5 says that we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Paul commands in Romans 12 verse 1 to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. In Christ Christ, we become like the successful offerings in the Old Testament that became a sweet-smelling smell, sweet aroma in God's throne room. Now, I want to explain why I have Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28 listed on the outline for point number two. Look at verses 6 and 10 briefly with me at, in Colossians 1. Do you notice anything similar? Verse 6 says it is constantly bearing fruit, and increasing. And here in verse 10, it says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This language should be very familiar to us. Here's why this is so important. God's command to the first creation in Adam was to be fruitful and multiply in offspring. You following? God's command to the new creation in Christ is to be fruitful and multiply in disciples. In the book of Acts, there are three references to being fruitful and multiplying, and they all refer to the word spreading. Acts 6-7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly. Acts twelve twenty four says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And then Acts 19 verse 20 says, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So here's why I mentioned this. Paul applying Genesis 1 language in Colossians 1 indicates that believers are a part of the new creation and are beginning to fulfill it in Christ. What has been left unfulfilled in Adam. The Bible's truly amazing. And this is accomplished through the bearing of fruit. The more you know about God, the more fruit you should bear. Those are two sides of the same coin. If one truly knows God, then good works will inevitably follow, as opposed to the evil works that characterize our former life of unbelief. As Paul says later in verse 21, where he says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Now here's what fruit is not. Having a large church attendance, serving in six ministries, having a PhD in theology, or running yourself into the ground serving this local church, none of that is fruit. The Bible actually gives us whole lists of what fruit is and what fruit is not, and both of them are found uh, next to each other in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 22 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's fruit. That's fruit. As opposed to the deeds of the flesh, which Paul writes a couple verses earlier, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, how many of us respond in sinful speech? Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and not only that, things like those. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. This is how we not only bear fruit, but please God. We abide. I remember in one of my seminary classes, we are in, in a Greek class, we were under, trying to understand what this word abide meant. And my seminary professor um, described it as when you're in the grocery line with your mom and she says, hey, stay right here, I'll be back. I just gotta get some eggs or some milk and you panic because the line's moving along. But what she actually meant when she said stay is stay, but continue on as if I was still here. Not stay in this one spot. This is the only manner in which we walk that is worthy of the Lord. We continue as if Jesus was still here. That's the art of discipleship. And it's an art, a discipline, that takes an enormous amount of power, of effort, of time, of the use of gifts. So, that, so how could we possibly succeed in doing it well? The only way possible, God's glorious power. Point number three, strengthened. Verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. An identical phrase is found in Ephesians 3.16, which says, According to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. This power, as Paul writes, is according to his glory. And his glory represents the richness of his attributes that we receive so that Christ might dwell in us. In short, God gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. God's power is the source of our ability to live godly lives. So you have no excuse. Paul writes in Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This verse is evidence, evidence that Christians should be the most hopeful people around do you find yourself sharing more heresy controversy and the fallenness of humanity online spreading your own fear of what the, what has this world come to rather than being a light in the darkness. That is social media. Now let me remind some of the more seasoned generational believers before me. I want to exhort you to fight the temptation of feeling jaded Being at this campus as a teacher has revealed to me how much teenagers are apathetic towards Jesus and how a lot of that stiff-neckedness is mirrored in their elders. I don't know why, but just by sheer observation, it's like they acquire the sense of impending doom. Like they've done all they could in their youthful years and become mere observers, watchers of a dying world. Has it ever crossed your mind that younger believers are walking away from the faith because they come to the conclusion that Jesus is not worth following because of what they see in their parents or grandparents? One theologian writes, you can't make your children believe, but you can make it hard for them to doubt. Do your due diligence in preventing the next generation from saying things like this. Well, grandpa says he's been a believer for 50 years, yet all he does is grumble at the TV and Facebook all afternoon. Why would I want that? To my generational Christians, believe it or not, a dying dark world is watching you to see your next move or reaction. But even more importantly, the next generation of believers are as well. What will they see? Will they see a wise man or wise woman, hopeful, motivated by the glories of heaven? Or will they see a paranoid, professing Christian eager to see the earth burn to the ground? Now, why include Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 for point number three? Because Ezekiel 36 prophesize a spiritual return from exile that is ultimately initiated by the resurrection of Christ. I'll explain how this matters. Listen to how God spoke through Ezekiel. Verse 24 says, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see, the reason why this matters is because it is God himself who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Those who put their faith in Christ are given a new heart and are filled with the spirit of God that enables them, us, to glorify him. To display his character to that dying world. God supplies you himself to have power. Powerful what, Chris? To endure. In the ancient world, power was received from your connection to various gods and pagan rituals. Which was a big issue in the church of Colossae. Yet this divine power isn't given to us to achieve selfish gains or to manifest good things or to have some weird authority by declaring things into the spiritual realm. But it's given to us to grow in godly virtue. True godliness and divine power is expressed not in conquering nations and armies and outward victories. It is expressed in inward victories. Look at verse 11, he says, joyously in steadfastness and patience. That's the true battleground, church. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. This was essential in the midst of trials and temptations. Self-control. As Israel needed, as Ezekiel prophesied, as Christ fulfilled and as the Spirit of God applies today. When you recognize that, when you recognize that you've been given a power so marvelous, so timely, what is and what should be our natural response? To say thank you to be grateful. Point number four, qualified. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 10 and 11 describe what pleases the Father. And 12 through 14 remind us of what he's done. Paul says later in Colossians 3 that whatever you do in word or deed, meaning whatever you say and do, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. When we are mindful, when we're mindful of the Lord's immeasurable loving kindness towards us, our lives are to be saturated with gratitude. Every day, every day should be Thanksgiving for the Christian. The act of giving thanks isn't simply some emotional attitude of reflection, but an intentional action of obedience. If you're not, if you're ungrateful and you're not constantly giving thanks, you're actually in disobedience. You're not growing in Christ. What should we be thankful for? The fact that we've been qualified. A word meaning made fit or made adequate. So, I want you to reflect on the Exodus out of Egypt for a moment, since it is Thursday. Did you know that the Israelites were never going to leave the bondage of that place, both physically and spiritually, unless God made them fit for the promised land of Canaan? Here's how he accomplished this. God creates the universe and a people, Genesis. Genesis. His people become enslaved in Egypt, are rescued, and are given ways to worship him through his law and the tabernacle. Exodus. God then desires intimate fellowship with his rescued people, so he institutes a sacrificial system in order to make fellowship with sinful men possible. Leviticus. Those are the first three books of the Bible right there. Now here's why Leviticus 11 matters for point number four. Leviticus 11 verses 44 through 45 say, for I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy for I am holy. Leviticus matters and is my favorite book of the Old Testament because it is a word for word outline on how we are qualified to enjoy the God of glory through the shedding of blood. Sound familiar? After God delivered Israel at the Exodus, his purpose was that they received the promised land as an inheritance. In simple terms, when I think of an inheritance, I think about wealth, property, or a family heirloom that goes to the son or daughter, having done nothing to deserve it except to be considered close family. This is exactly what God did for Israel. Exodus 6:8 says, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. So God essentially says, I swore to give it to your ancestors. But since you're considered family, it's yours to own. It's yours to enjoy. And guess what? He's done that for us. Look at Colossians 1 verse 12 once more before we move on. Paul writes about the sharing of an inheritance to express a destination. We're going somewhere. That destination, ladies and gentlemen, we will look at in the the last two verses. But before I go on to the fifth point for my Old Testament scholars here, what is Daniel 7 about? Daniel 7 is about the future son of man replacing four kingdoms of the world with his kingdom. Daniel 7 verses 13, 14, and 18 read, One like the son of man, I want you to listen closely here. One like the son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Verse 18 of Daniel 7, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. One of the first sayings of Jesus when he begins his earthly ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand he was able to proclaim such a bold statement because he was the one who was going to usher in that kingdom through the death on a cross, rising from the dead, qualifying those who would trust in it. The greatest rescue in the history of creation. Point number five, rescued verse 13 for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son believe it or not church where you sit now you are either blinded under the authority of satan or regenerated in union with christ it's a reality we face every day when we wake up in the morning and look in the mirror Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 he says and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of god what happens when your eyes are covered or veiled what do you see you don't see nothing it's darkness It's darkness. And notice how Paul doesn't say he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is all the enlightenment and vitality we need in this broken and dark world. This transfer from one place to another brings to mind more Exodus imagery because Israel's removal from Egypt is exactly what allowed Israel to become a kingdom. God told Moses that he would deliver them from the bondage of Egypt. He would be their God and they would be his people and that they would become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, obviously, that's referring to the first exodus. But did you know that the prophets in the Old Testament prophesy a second exodus, a greater exodus? Here's why I included verses Verses from Isaiah 9 and 42 in your outline, which read, Those who live in darkness, the light will shine on them. I will appoint you as a light to the nations to open blind eyes and bring out those who dwell in darkness. Put a pin in that. Everyone is familiar with how Paul the apostle got saved, right? Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he got literally knocked off his high horse. And the, and the story goes on in Acts chapter nine. But listen to how in Acts 26, as Paul is before the Roman king Agrippa, recalls what Jesus told Paul in much more detail on that road to Damascus. Because we don't get this much detail in Acts chapter nine. Acts 26, verse 18, Jesus, this is Jesus talking, or Paul quoting Jesus. He says, I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul quotes Jesus, who is quoting Isaiah 42 And then in the gospel of Matthew chapter four, Matthew quotes Isaiah nine, which reads the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. Matthew 417 continues on saying from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, please listen carefully. I don't want you to miss this because I know I jumped from Old and New Testament a couple times, but here's my point, and I believe it's Paul's point here in verses 12 through 14 of our passage. As we experience the deepest darkness of exile, in bondage when we were slaves to sin under the dominion of Satan, God rescued us to look forward to the day God's glory will shine fully. As the morning sun dawns for the same God that said, let there be light is the same God who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the same way that he said, let there be light to institute the first creation is the same way he says, let there be light in the new creation in all of you. If you are believers in Christ Jesus, we go round and round in apologetics, talking about the creation of the universe and how miraculous it was and how dumbfounded it is for people who don't believe. But did you know that you coming to Christ is almost as much of a miracle This is the nature of our rescue from darkness to light, and it was only, only possible through one miraculous act of obedience. Point number six, redeemed. Verse 14 reads, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That word redemption and the Greek is a compound word, which means price of release. It communicates this sort of freedom from oppressive enslavement through the payment of a ransom. Someone had to pay a hefty price to free a captive. Put a pin in that one. In Old Testament passages, a ransom involved a lot of planning and resources to release someone from a form of captivity. We see that in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee. So here in verses 12 through 14, Paul has masterfully used Old Testament language to highlight God's work in saving sinners. Listen to these parallels between the Exodus and the cross. Blood on the doorposts, blood on the cross. Baptized through the crossing of the Red Sea, baptized into the judgment cross of Christ led into the promised land of Canaan, led into the promised land of the new creation. It all pointed to Jesus. This is why I include Exodus 6 on the outline. Listen closely. Exodus 6, verse 6 reads, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments." Verse seven says, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Did you, did you hear it? Did you hear it? Who else redeemed people with an outstretched arm or outstretched arms through a mighty judgment? And through that judgment become our God and we his people, Christ. You see, death does not transform into life easily redemption comes at a cost. And it came at the monumental cost of the murder of the Son of God. Christ proclaimed to Telestai as he drew his final breath on the cross in John 19, which was a word written on bills, declaring that they had been paid paid in full, a cancellation of a debt. Someone had to pay a hefty price to free a captive. Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a a what? A ransom for many. Someone had to pay a hefty price to free a captive. The glorious truth for the Christian is that God the father did not just leave the finished work of the son in the past for us to reflect on as we wait to go to heaven. Jesus says in John 16:7 that it is better that he go away so that the helper the Holy Spirit of truth will convict us of sin and guide us into all truth as we wait to see Jesus face to face and it will be a glorious day. Paul commands elsewhere not to grieve the Holy Spirit because we are sealed in him for the day of redemption. The day it all comes to a perfect, a perfect fulfillment. I love, I love that Pastor Josh has begun saying this because it's so practically true. And I shared, that the, shared this at the young adult study last night. If you're born again, you do not have a place in the world anymore. Egypt is long gone. When that pit in your stomach longs for leaks, cucumbers and onions back in Egypt, know that God has satisfied you with a bread of life in his kingdom, not in Egypt. Your past habits, affections, relationships, enslavements, failures were nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago so that you may experience the true freedom in Christ. So do not dare be confused about God's will because you have a freedom that cost a hefty price. That freedom, that freedom, let me emphasize this, that that freedom does not begin when you die and walk through those pearly gates. That freedom begins now. There's a reason why you didn't get immediately taken up to heaven as soon as you believed. You have a job to do. In the same way that Israel marveled in awe or at least they should have, as they reflected on their rescue out of Egypt and were commanded to walk worthy in the promised land, is the same way we should marvel in awe as we reflect on our rescue out of the world commanded to walk worthy as the new creation. Now, let me close with this beautiful quote by John Piper. Listen closely. As we see Jesus more clearly, the gospel gets bigger and bigger in our hearts. His death becomes more wonderful, His resurrection becomes more astonishing, Sin becomes more disgusting, and the devil seems more evil. The, restor- the restoring work of the Spirit gets mightier. The global extent of the gospel becomes more important. The connections between everything within the, within the Bible become clearer. Our yearning for eternity becomes greater, and the love of God, the love of God, becomes more delightful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for being stubborn, for being paranoid, for not delighting in in your will as we try to make our own plans. Father, you have outlined something so beautiful in your word, and Father, I just call on you to forgive us for having scales on our eyes and not truly delighting in all that you have given us in Christ and how you have mag- how you have magnificently provided power to obey by giving us yourself in the person of the holy spirit father i pray we all pray that anyone who is confused anyone who feels like they're stuck in a relationship or a job or a season of life, confused, thinking that, they, thinking that they can't hear you or thinking that you haven't heard them. Father, remind us of the beautiful truth of the, of the hefty price of precious blood that was shed to free all of us captives. In captives, we are no more. Father, help us walk in a manner that is worthy of you, having been filled with the fruit of the knowledge of your will. As we hope to see you face to face, and that hope dominates our every decision, how we respond to our spouses, how we treat our kids, how we, how we speak behind or lack thereof the backs of those who we claim to love the most. Help us walk in a manner worthy of you, Lord, because you are forever worthy of it. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, and all of Saints said.